If you have a Bible, you can find Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to cover a good part of the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. And I'm only going to read just a a couple of snippets out of there, but that's where we're going to be this morning. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, and then we'll skip to chapter 2 here in just a moment. So Mark 1, 21, they went up into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then skip over with me to chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good morning. Our story this morning begins with Jesus in Capernaum. I have a little slide there just to give you a framework of where the geography is. With that, it's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the top of this map. And there's an ancient synagogue right there on that site. Now, it's not the one that Jesus taught at because that synagogue was built in the 4th century, but there's a synagogue underneath this synagogue that's there now that you can just walk right there and be there. Archaeologists believe that that's the synagogue that Jesus actually taught from. It's right there. And just down the street, down there in Capernaum, there's this like UFO type of structure that is supposedly built on top of Simon Peter's house. And it's not far from the synagogue, and it's from the Catholic Church, and you have to be Catholic to enter there. And for some reason, they know when you're lying, because I've tried to go in there, and they haven't let me in there. But I'm not bitter about that at all. (laughs) Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. I find this kind of interesting, because you know where to find Jesus. He's at church. Literally, right? And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not the scribes. So these folks, they were accustomed to different types of teaching, but not what Jesus was talking about here. Typically, scribes would kind of regurgitate what a rabbi taught them, and they kind of would quote them and say, oh, and this and this and this and this. But they wouldn't necessarily take ownership from themselves as to what scriptures were saying. And, And that's not the case with Jesus. And it wasn't just... The people who recognized this, this was also recognized in the spiritual realm as well. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I wonder if this was a new visitor that just happened to walk into the synagogue on Saturday morning, or, or was this a guy who attended church for a while. Now if this was someone who had been attending for a while, has this happened before where he kind of had these kind of outbursts or is this something new because the unclean spirit recognized the authority of Jesus and we don't know these things but it makes me wonder if someone who is spiritually unhealthy can just come to church week after week after week without any healing and if that's happening here. My hope 
is that as people come here and get spiritually nourished and healthier, that's what's happening. And you don't just come week after week after week without any sort of transformation happening in your life. And hopefully there is a change that happens while you're here and you aren't at the same place spiritually that you were a year before. Now maybe these outbursts from this person were a weekly occurrence and these guys in Capernaum just didn't know what to do with them so they just were kind of like, you know, put them down or whatever. We've had people cry out here before also. It's been a while, but we've had folks who have had some choice words for me from out there. And if you're out there this morning, please try to refrain. But maybe that has something to do with mental illness, which I believe to be the case in the occurrences that have happened here. But in this case, in Capernaum with Jesus, I don't think it's a mental illness. The Spirit knew who Jesus was. Now, not sure how this unclean spirit knew who Jesus was. Maybe he got word from Satan that, you know, you know, I tried to get this guy to fall for 40 days and he didn't. And the guy was like, oh, never mind. If you can't do it, boss, I can't do it. Like, so I don't know. But you notice that this unclean spirit asked, have you come to destroy us? That that spirit knew something. Now look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now back to Mark chapter 1, verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And Jesus spoke to the unclean spirit, not to the guy. And I find it fascinating that it is people who question who Jesus is, but there is no question from the spiritual world who Jesus is. But it's not belief in Jesus that separates unclean spirits who believe from people who don't believe. James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons, unclean spirits, believe in God. Believe in Jesus. But they're not obedient to Him and His ways. Their life does not align with the ways of God. And they knew that Jesus exists. They know Jesus to be God, but they don't embrace that He is God. They acknowledge Him to be King, but they don't want to live under His reign. And the unclean spirit convulsing Him and crying out with a loud voice came out of Him, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him, and at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So the people recognize Jesus' authority and power after this demonic confrontation. The unclean spirit is actually quite orthodox in its theology. It knows who Jesus is. It knows what Jesus came to do. And it's the people who question who Jesus is and what he came to do. You see how orthodox Christian theology, if it's just stuck in terms of knowledge, it's powerless. It's unfruitful. Now, we don't use that term all that much nowadays. That term is kind of used elsewhere. We use the term evangelical now, right? And I just want to throw caution to you to be cautious of evangelicals, which is probably most of us. That talk is cheap. And sometimes belief is cheap. Because even the demons believe. Now the difference is in the fruit of our lives and how that belief transforms our lives. The difference is where our hearts are towards God. It's not just the knowledge. 
It's not even just action because you and I can do things and not have a good heart behind what we do. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now what Jesus does next is strange. He just exercised his authority and power over the demonic. He has the people of Capernaum where anyone of influence would want them. And what does he do? He leaves. This is really strange. Jesus is really well received here in Capernaum. And rather than capitalizing on this moment, he leaves. Why does he do that? I mean, what is happening here? I think it was because that fame that he was getting was not leading people to repentance and belief in the gospel. That the crowd was reacting to the miracle, but it did not lead to repentance and faith in the gospel. They were attracted to the miracles, but not transformed lives. Jesus' purpose was not to attract large crowds to watch him perform miracles. He came to transform lives, to save lives. And he could see this wasn't going into the direction that he wanted it to go, so he resets. Now, some churches have this dynamic happening within them. They're really good at attracting people, but they're not leading people to repentance and believing in the gospel. And some of those attractions may even be great things like good music and good support for families and children and youth programs and fantastic social justice initiatives and solid Bible teaching and whatever it is. But is the church leading people to repentance and believing in the gospel? See, Jesus wasn't about just gathering bigger and bigger crowds and giving the masses what they wanted. He came to save and change lives. So what are we as a church about here? If we're not about repentance and belief in the gospel, it has me wonder how long Jesus is going to be around, be here. If we're not about repentance and not about belief in the gospel, what's the difference between us and anything else, any other organization? And I realize we have a ton of injustice happening around us in the world. And without Jesus how far are we really going to get in battling those things? We'll just be left with a large crowd of observers with no power to transform lives because it'll just be this large crowd not knowing what it's fighting against. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And here's the reason why Jesus came. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So why is there so much evil and injustice in the world if Jesus already came? Well, there's a not yet aspect to it. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And from Jesus' very public ministry of delivering someone from demon possession, Mark records his next miraculous act in a really different light. It's private, and it doesn't have to do with an unclean spirit, but a physical illness. Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever, and immediately they told him about her. 
And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Pretty dramatic event here. Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law completely. She began to serve them when just seconds before she was just laid out flat in bed with a fever and her healing was complete. She was restored completely to wholeness and her health returned to her. And this is what Jesus does. He restores. He heals. And this is what he will do. He will make all things right. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now you notice that we have a part in this healing. In verse 30, as she lay there, there was a group of people who told Jesus about her. And so during this conversation, I think that they're telling Jesus not just about her illness, but just who she was to them, how much she meant to them, how valuable she was, like what a great woman this is. So how do we see people around us? in the way that we intercede for them, and in, in, in the way that we are able to see their suffering and their value? Do we bring that before God and do what we can for them? The people around this region recognize Jesus' compassion and His ability to heal, and so they brought their loved ones to them. Verse 32, That evening at sundown they brought to Him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. Those who were physically sick or oppressed by demons were brought by others. And there's a difference between a physical sickness and a spiritual oppression. They are, they are different forms of oppression. And Jesus brings restoration to both the spiritual and the physical. Now, after Jesus ministered to all of these people the day before, they take a look at who he meets up with. And the first thing in the morning before the sun even arises, where do we find Jesus? Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Early Sunday morning, he had a time of communion with God. And How often do we get together with God to talk about what's going on? Interceding for others, for those of us who serve on teams. We know this to be so important that we debrief with our teams and so that we can all grow in our effectiveness and mature and develop. How about having that time with God? So important especially for those who serve people who are suffering. And we see so much human suffering and we need to bring that to God for His support. And you ever wonder how Jesus didn't burn out? How He was so in tune to the people who were around Him who were hurting and He wasn't numb to their pain. He wasn't calloused to what was going on in their life. And a lot of His strength had to deal with being with God and dealing with these terrible things happening around him, yet having this depth in his prayer life. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. I don't think Jesus was surprised by this. He knew everyone was looking for him. And he probably prayed for discernment on whether to stay or to move on to the next towns here. And from a worldly perspective, everything was pointing for him to stay. 
The numbers were growing, popularity was high, community effectiveness was measurable and it was good, and everything pointed to him to stay. Verse 38, And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And again, you're just thinking like, what? Things are going so well. Why would you go? And so Simon and the other guys around him, they just must have been shocked at this time. What is going on? Why go to another town when there's so much to be done here? And this must have also been really disappointing to them because their friends and family were in that town. Like, you're healing my friends and you're healing my family and things are going good for our community, but now you want to leave. But Jesus knew what he needed to do and prayer was surely part of that discernment process. And perhaps Jesus saw that the purpose he came was being overshadowed by his ministry to heal people of their spiritual and physical oppression. That what he came to preach wasn't heard because the people were too caught up in the healing. Now sure, Jesus came to our earth and performed miracles, but being a miracle worker wasn't why he came. He came to proclaim the gospel and said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the miracle supported what he preached. His preaching wasn't meant to be second to the miracles he performed. And maybe he saw that the people weren't hearing what he preached. And Jesus didn't want people to be attracted to him for wrong reasons. Ministry is not about numbers. It's not solely about the work that we do, even though it may be a good work. Do we lead people to repentance and belief in the gospel? Verse 39, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now let's not get distracted with numbers or even the work we do. Are we leading people to God? How is our prayer life and our intimacy with God? And when we're tempted by thinking that we're important and everyone is looking for you, will we be closely connected enough to God to discern when to move on and just say, let us go on to the next towns? That it's not about us. And it's so easy to be attracted to things for the wrong reasons, but Jesus' purpose was to preach and cast out demons. See, Jesus wasn't just about lip service. It's not just about preaching. He preached and did something. Here's an example. Verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now this leper's condition defined him. Right? A leper was considered unclean, and so he was ostracized from society. And as he's walking around, he actually had to announce unclean, unclean, and to let people know that, you know, there's a leper, we need to stay away because we don't want that contagion. Separated from their loved ones, separated from friends, family, and pretty much sentenced to death without those people around him. A very lonely place to be. Alone, with no advocate. But he noticed something about Jesus. Our advocate. Now, you also notice that the leper went to Jesus. He came to him, which is a pretty big no-no. He was supposed to announce unclean, and he was not supposed to go close to people, but he approached Jesus. Now, this is interesting because in Leviticus 13 and 14, they're to approach priests to kind of define their cleanliness. But here he's approaching Jesus, who's not a priest, and he's on his knees, and he's pleading for him to advocate for him. 
Now, he must have heard about Jesus, what Jesus can do, but more importantly, who Jesus is. A person of great compassion and willingness and desire to advocate for someone forgotten by the world. Now, here Jesus risks something as well. To be around a leper meant that he would be considered ceremonially unclean, especially if he touched him. And we see that Jesus is not too concerned with that. Verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now Jesus' compassion for this man who had no advocate overruled any religious law that prevented him from being close, listening, and touching this hurting man. See, Jesus could have simply healed him from a distance by just speaking a word, but he doesn't do that. He physically touched him. When was the last time this leper was touched by someone considered clean? And Jesus met him where he was at, just like he did for you and me, coming from heaven to earth. And as followers of Jesus, we are to imitate him. And we see this time and time again that Jesus is just kind of upsetting the religious establishment, that he's upsetting people around him, and he touches him. Are we advocates for those who are hurting, ostracized, unacceptable, unclean, even though people around us would say, you shouldn't do that around those people. You should avoid those people. Do we have the compassion of Jesus not just to help from afar, but to get close and to touch people's lives. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he instructed him to follow Leviticus 13, 14, but he doesn't and it causes problems. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, things aren't happening the way that they're supposed to happen. Jesus is considered unclean. Right? He touched the leper. He didn't go to the priest and, and get a clean bill of health. And so we see that Jesus retreats here for a little bit. And things aren't going to plan as hoped. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He's paralyzed. Jesus, why don't you heal the paralysis? Why don't you deal with that? What's up with the forgiving of sins? I mean, the dude can't walk. Now, we know Jesus to be a compassionate person, but he was setting the stage here to point out the spiritual paralysis that some of those in the room had. And this really ticked off those who were the most religious. And Jesus is really good at doing this. Like, he touches this unclean leper, he enters here, and he's like, oh, you guys are around here. Your sins are forgiven. And so 
here they are, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You notice that their theology is right on. Right? Just like the demons' theology. It's right on. What they got wrong was their anthropology. See, they had God right. It's absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. But they neglected their brothers and their sisters. They forgot about who was around them. And they also got their sociology wrong. They knew their theology, but they didn't know how it was going to be practiced in society. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because you can just say that, and no one can disprove that. Your sins are forgiven. Okay. Or, no, it's not. Like You can't see something, but rise, take up your bed, and walk. Very easy to prove or not prove. Right? It's right in front of your face. Empirically proven. And we can observe that. And if the person doesn't rise up and walk, then they're proven false. So Jesus essentially is saying, I just said what was easy, and now I'm going to say the more difficult thing to show you that what I said that was easy is really true. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Only God can forgive sins. So who is Jesus claiming to be? Now in these stories, we see Jesus as our advocate for spiritual matters, right? Forgiveness of sins for anthropological matters, physical, emotional, healing, for sociological matters, reuniting with community, that this leper no longer has to live in isolation by himself. And we have a part, a big part, in all three of those things. Now, we can't forgive sins, but we have a part in it by how we live and what we say. And for the anthropological and the sociological, there, there are some things that we can do to live out our faith, but it needs to be shaped by our theology. And it can't just be a theology that's just stuck in our heads that is orthodox, that is even right, because even the demons have that. And so do these scribes and Pharisees. They have the correct theology. And we see Jesus address the theology, the forgiveness of sins, and that shapes the anthropology and the sociology. And dare I say, Politics also. And so before I enter into politics, I just thank God that I'm out of time so we don't have to go into that. (laughs) So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would shape us in everything that we think, including our politics, from your theology. And we do see, God, that even though correct theology can lead us down a wrong path. Because the demons had an orthodox theology. The ones who studied your word most diligently, the scribes and the Pharisees, had correct theology, but they were so off on their anthropology, on their sociology, even their politics. And I pray, God, that 
our theology would be able to bleed into all aspects of our lives so that we would be glorifying and honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen.